I am Jeff Ebert, and welcome to my podcast, Gospel Wabi Sabi. This is season one, episode three. We're following the life of Jesus Christ through the eyes of the Apostle John. And through John's writings, we have this chance to glimpse some of the most intimate moments in Jesus's life, seen only as an eyewitness could see them. We're in chapter one of the Gospel of John, if you want to follow along in your Bible or Bible app. And last time we learned three primary things about Jesus. First, John says that Jesus is in fact God in the flesh, God revealing himself in human form. This word that was from the beginning now made flesh and known as the Son of God. This amazing hypostatic union of the nature of God and the nature of humanity, 100% God and yet also 100% human. That's a big part of the opening of the Gospel of John, this divine mystery of the Incarnation. And then second, not everyone is going to receive Jesus in this way. Not everyone is going to believe this message. The Creator has come, but John tells us that he was rejected by the majority of his own day. And this will prove to be true throughout time, the Creator rejected by his own creation. And then third, what happens to those who do accept it? Uh, who do accept is something amazing. The message will be received by a believing minority, and those who have this gift of receiving this message are given the right to be called the children of God. They become children of God, by God himself, not by their own good works. And so a Christian is always a receiver on the receiving end of God's mercy. And then believing and receiving Jesus becomes the focal point of our lives, and the implications of that choice further downstream in life are very great. Now John is going to take us a step-by-step through the first week of Jesus' public ministry. And as I've said before, John is so careful about details. We will hear this phrase uh, as we begin to read, on the next day, on the next day, on the next day, walking us through the first week of Jesus' ministry. We don't know much about Jesus before this. You can add what we know from the other Gospels, and it still ain't much. Uh, Only that he lived a quiet life, working in his father's carpenter shop. His public ministry only took place after a three-year period, but it's truly amazing what he did in such a short time. In his short public life, Jesus revealed the heart of God to humanity. And on the first day of the public ministry of Jesus, one of the great characters of the Bible and of human history appears on the scene. John, but not the same John as the author of this gospel. This is John who has come to be known as John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. All four gospels give a lot of ink to this John, the one who baptizes, and we'll talk about why in just a few minutes. This John and Jesus were probably second cousins. He was the son of Mary's cousin Elizabeth, and you can read all about that good uh, background in the gospel of Luke chapter 1. But even though they are second cousins, there's not much evidence that they had spent much time together. First, chapter 1, verses 5 through 8, goes like this. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. And then skipping down to John, chapter 1, verse 15 through 28. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me, because he was before me. Out of his fullness we have received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, 
he has made him known. Now this was John's testimony when the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? No. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of the one calling in the desert. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now some Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, Why then do you baptize if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. Well, American writer Mark Twain once said that a fanatic is someone who can't change his mind and won't change the subject. And if there was ever a fanatic about God, it was John the Baptist. I mean, he is just this wild character. Other Gospels give more details. I mean, he's dressed in this shirt made out of goat hair, so I guess he itched a lot. He ate locusts and wild honey. I mean, if you've had your breakfast, I'm betting you're not out there looking for locusts. I'm sure you could fry them up with a little butter and they might be a little crunchy, but really back day, locusts were a meager fare. It's what people ate who were near starvation. It wasn't just some, you know, vegetarian diet. So I mentally picture him lean with not an ounce of fat on him. John was just kind of this one slim, trim dude. And he was dedicated to the Lord, which as you read his birth background in Luke, his parents dedicated him to serve in the temple from birth. That's what real biblical dedication means. The parents give their child over to the service of God in the temple. It's not what we see in church when parents don't want to baptize their infant child, but instead want the child dedicated. That type of ceremony, friends, it's really not in the Bible. It's not what biblical infant dedication actually is. The modern practice of infant dedication is something invented by pastors who want to keep people happy, myself included, I think. But parents today don't really mean what John's parents meant when they dedicated him to the Lord. It's like some stellar athlete signing a commitment letter to their Division I school when they're seven years old. The future is mapped out. For John, that meant he was probably part of a sect of Jews called the Essenes, who lived out in the desert. He never once touched wine to his lips. His hair grew uncut from the day of his birth. Out in the desert, John did little to protect his body from the harsh elements, the, you know, the howling wind, the furnace heat, the baking sun, the cutting sand. He was austere. That was just the way that he lived. The fierce sun, I bet, had leathered his face into a craggy wrinkle. So I'm sure he looked old before his time. I'm sure he needed some serious Botox treatments. The benefit, though, for him were the hours spent uninterrupted alone with God. He spent much of his time in prayer and fasting. And in his great little book called The Prisoner in the Third Cell, Gene Edwards writes this. He says, John was one who could hear the voice of God within the desert wind, see his face within the sun, and feel his presence in the blowing sand. You see, few people abandoned every human comfort to be so utterly unhindered in the pursuit of knowing God. John's devotion to God was absolute. Nothing else mattered to him but his call to speak for God. As he approached age of 30, the age when by tradition holy men ended their training and then entered their ministry, 
he moved from this wasteland to the populated regions to begin his preaching. He preceded Jesus by several months or even a year, long enough for him to attract a large following. And people, you got to know, people flocked to hear him. First, the listeners came in ones and twos, and then by scores and hundreds, they came on foot across burning sands, and the numbers just grew and grew and grew. People wanted to see him. He was sort of like one of the ancient prophets that they had heard about in the scriptures. I mean, he was a spectacle, spiritual street theater. Did the heat drive him mad? I mean, he was a wild man who looked like a lunatic, and by his words, he was a prophet. I mean, his voice must have thundered. His eyes flashed. Despite themselves, people could not but stop and stare and listen. They slowed their steps, souls strained to hear what this man had to say. And what they heard resonated with their deepest feelings, touched a deep vacancy in their lives. His words convinced and convicted their hearts. Only a few of his words are actually recorded for us, but there's no doubt that he spoke with some kind of unusual power. He spoke to people about their needs to repent of their sins and their need for confession. And what he said sounded impossible. John not only demanded radical change, but demanded it right there, right then. No fooling around. They all listened, and some people wept. Some fell on their knees. Many cried out for undeserved forgiveness. Each day he spoke, he said something the crowds had never heard anyone else address. His daring was fearless. Merchants came to hear and then repented of their crooked business practices. Soldiers came and repented of their brutality. Camel drivers and housewives and women of renown, women of the streets, they all came and were longing, uh, had a secret longing in their hearts. They were touched when they went under Jordan's waters, and something obviously of the Spirit was afoot here. Somehow John spoke to the deepest longings in their hearts, and he set the table for Jesus to appear. He was like the opening act before the main show hit the stage. The majority of those touched by John's baptism were Jewish people. This is surprising because at that time, no Jews were ever baptized. Non-Jews who moved into the Jewish religion as converts or proselytes, they were always baptized. Baptism existed as a cleansing ceremony long before Christians came on the scene. The Christian faith didn't invent baptism, okay? just borrowed it, refined it for faith in Jesus. But converts to Judaism had to be baptized, but not those of the house of Israel. They presumed they already belonged to God. They didn't need to be washed. And so John's message was not popular with everyone. He said Israelites too needed to be cleansed of sin, and this message did not go over well with the leadership. So they sent a delegation of priests and Levites, a delegation of dignitaries, all in their formal religious costumes. This group saw themselves as the authorities of God's way. And so they stand there in a circle around him, fine, erudite, scholarly, but they were not happy with what was going on. They couldn't figure it out. Why was he so popular? Jesus was the son of a priest, Zechariah. If you were the son of the priest, you could be a priest. He was a descendant of Aaron. But this guy is not behaving like a priest should. Out here eating locusts? I mean, his message is too radical. And you know, that's so often the case. The religious power brokers resist anything that upsets the status quo. The challenge is their sense of control. They get nervous. They clamp down. Martin Luther was not popular when he challenged the authorities of his day. Even now, radical Christianity is not often popular with the bureaucrats in the church systems. 
because they're there to preserve the system no matter what. They are the leaders of the system, but the system itself was sick, is what John was trying to get at, but they wouldn't admit it. Most people are not brave enough to break with the traditions of their time. It's true in our churches today. Too often there's been this unwillingness to hear criticism criticism or to fully investigate bad things that are happening in churches, like the church is too important to go through another scandal. The church has to be protected, and that attitude only comes back to bite us. No, John the Baptist said to that attitude, no. John, in his scratchy goat hair shirt, was calling them to come out of that kind of corrupt system. The delegates had two questions. Who are you, and why do you baptize Jews? Baptism, this outward expression of an inward change, it showed a desire for a movement toward God. Who are you, they asked. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the Christ, Jesus, or John answered. People thought he might be. They had been expecting the one to come. The Israelites were a captive people. They were looking for a deliverer. They knew the story of the prophet Elijah as told in 2 Kings 2. Elijah did not die as we do. He was taken up in a whirlwind. What a way to go. I mean, whoop, and up you go. The common idea was that Elijah would return to earth just prior to the Messiah, that Elijah would be a sign of his coming. That's built into the practice of the Seder meal to this day. The Passover meal, even to this day, is expecting Elijah to come. No, I'm not him, says John. Are you a prophet? Kind of same popular belief. Either Isaiah or Jeremiah would return just prior to the Messiah. Nope, not any of these, John says. So you're not the Messiah, you're not Elijah, you're not one of the prophets. Who the heck are you? And John gives such a dynamite answer from Isaiah 40, verse 3. I tell you who I am. I'm simply a voice crying out in the wilderness. Get ready for the coming of the King of Kings. He's on his way, and in fact, he's already here. Here is the spirit that should be in every Christian's heart. What is it that we're all about? Why doesn't God just take us up in a whirlwind as soon as we have faith in him? He leaves us here to point people towards Jesus, to help other folks get a greater understanding, a greater appreciation for Jesus Christ, to be moved in the direction of Jesus by our testimony. He's the one. Make straight the way of the Lord. Other translations say, prepare the way of the Lord. Well, what's that all about? Well, Middle Eastern roads back then, they were not surfaced with asphalt, just dirt and stone, and with the rain and the erosion, they often just turned into mud ruts. Tradition had it that before a king or an important dignitary would come to visit the people, uh, they would get out and work on those roads. They'd fill in the ruts, they'd reset the stones, they'd smooth things out so the king could come in on a smooth road. John's example is for us to prepare the way for the king. He's coming. He's on his way. Our job is to get things ready, to direct people to the king, to King Jesus. Have you ever listened to people trying to give directions? I mean, people do that so differently. Some do it with street names, you know, like take Oak Street, the First Avenue, take a right. Others point out the landmarks. They go, go down past the Wendy's to where the laundromat used to be, you know. People give directions in different ways. It's the same in pointing people to Jesus. It's not going to be some packaged presentation. Directing people towards Christ is really just the intersection of three stories. God's story, your story, and your friend's story. You have to see where those three things come together. God's story, the gospel, the evangel from the Greek. It means good news. Good news to you about Jesus. You've got to know God's story 
And then your story, how that good news has touched your life, how you have been changed and impacted by the grace of God. Your way should be different from my way because your story is different than mine. Your story with God is unique to you. And then you got to know your friend's story. And you do that by listening. You listen, you ask good questions, you understand their history and their struggles, their pains, their disappointments, their misconceptions, their prejudices. You try to see the whole thing and they'll actually tell you how your story could connect with their story and how God's story might be able to enter in. So here's a wabi-sabi question. Are you pointing people to Jesus? Are you in any way pointing other people to Jesus? If not, what is your life pointing people to? You're pointing them to something. Every life points in some direction. What's your direction? What is it? You don't have to be perfect to be able to be pointing people towards Jesus. You just have to be willing to tell your story. John finishes this section by stating in verse 26, I baptize with water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. He's the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. I'm not worthy to be his slave is really what he's saying. Traditionally, the disciple of a rabbi could do anything to serve that rabbi except one thing. The disciple could never remove the rabbi's sandals. That act was beneath the dignity even of his lowest disciple. That was something only to be done by a slave or a house servant. John's saying, I am not worthy to be his slave. John is saying he's the moon and the one who is coming is the sun, S-U-N. The moon has no light of its own. It only reflects the light of that greater orb. And that's John. He's only going to be reflecting the greater light of the Messiah who is coming. There's nothing inherently important about me, John says. Focus on the one who comes after me. And that's John through and through. There was this tremendous humility in him, as we'll see again in a minute, and also a tremendous power. But thus endeth the first day. And then on to day two, John 1, verses 29 through 39. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself do not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove, and remain on him. I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. The next day John was there again and two of his disciples. And when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the disciples heard him, Say this, they followed Jesus. And turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? And they said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and they saw where he was staying and they spent the day with him. It was about the tenth hour. The next day, off in the distance, comes Jesus. Here he comes. John, the one who baptizes, spontaneously roars out, Behold, look! See the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God. This is one of the most beautiful titles ascribed to Jesus. The entire Old Testament, all the history of the nation of Israel prepared 
everyone who was within earshot to understand that term as it was used to describe Jesus. That expression, Lamb of God, doesn't mean much to us. What do we know about lambs? Nothing. They look cuddly. They're a nice set of petting zoo. Probably never actually seen a herd of sheep or even seen lambs except in some kind of a pen. And you would think that being called the lamb would mean you're sort of wimpy, sort of docile and weak, not much of a threat to anyone. And here we've got to go back in time to a very different culture. The great image of the Lamb of God began all the way back in Genesis when Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel, the father of both the Jewish people and the Arab race, offered a sacrifice to God on the very site where a thousand years later, the great temple in Jerusalem would be built. And God provided that lamb. The lamb image crystallized in Exodus when the Hebrew people were slaves under Pharaoh. Remember, God sends a series of plagues on Egypt to convince Pharaoh to let the Israelites go free. Frogs and locusts and finally the death of the firstborn. In Exodus 12, starting with verse 21, it says that then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, select lambs for yourself according to your families and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood which is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood which is in the basin. And none of you shall go out of the door of this house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to slay the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to slay you. You shall observe this rite as an ordinance for you and your sons forever. You see, the Jewish people were taught right from the beginning that God would provide for their salvation and that a lamb was to be taken and slain in order for them to live. This animal was called the Passover lamb, and the lamb is still part of the Jewish Passover celebration today. The lamb given as a sacrifice. Take the lamb, sprinkle the blood on the doorposts and on the lintel, the tops and the sides. And many people see in that the symbol of the cross. As the nation of Israel grew and became more powerful, the lamb's sacrifice became part of their daily worship ritual. Every morning and evening, a lamb was sacrificed in the temple for the sins of the people. So long as the temple stood, the sacrifice was made. And it was made every day while Jesus walked this earth. We see the lamb down through the prophets as a precious forecasting of God's Messiah the one who would save the world from its sin. The Old Testament prophets were deep into lamb imagery. For example, Isaiah 53 verse 7 describes the coming Messiah in this lamb-like imagery. He would be like a lamb led to the slaughter. And so when John declared, behold the lamb of God, everyone around him knew all of this. They lived it as part of their daily routine. In a sense, he was saying, here's the day that Moses and our priests and our prophets have all dreamed of. This is it. No more waiting. It is such an appropriate title for Jesus because he was slain. He was killed for the sins of the world. It's also interesting to see that in Jesus' day, the image of a horned lamb was used to describe great conquerors like King David and King Solomon and their great national hero from the first century B.C., Judas Maccabeus. A conquering lamb. Now, that's an unusual combination, the lamb that conquers. But John, the gospel writer, goes on and uses this lamb imagery 29 times when he writes the book of Revelation, each time to describe the powerful Christ 
who is coming in judgment on the world, a warrior lamb defeating evil and darkness forever, one who fights evil, sin, and death and conquers it. So in this one word, this one little title, John the Baptist sums up the love, the sacrifice, the suffering, and the triumph of Christ. That's amazing. John recounts what happened when he baptized Jesus. We're told in the Gospel of Matthew that John doesn't want to do it. He says, Jesus, you don't need to be repent of anything. You should be baptizing me. And Jesus finally helped him to understand that Jesus wanted to identify himself with John's cause, that cause of confession and repentance and redemption. So John reluctantly allows Jesus to step down into the waters of the Jordan River with him. At that moment, it was like a door to another realm opened just over the Jordan River. Like for a few seconds, a portal to God's parallel universe just opened up. And out from the very center of the being of God the Father came forth his own spirit, the Holy Spirit, shimmering, fluttering out through the open door of heaven, somewhat as a dove might flutter, coming to rest on Jesus. This was the sign of the Messiah. The Spirit descended like a dove. Now, are we supposed to take that literally or symbolic or somewhere in between? Well, yes, I think so. Something happened, and the only way John could describe it was like the fluctuations of a dove descending. What happened next is what makes all the difference. Standing in the door between these two worlds, God calls out, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The voice of heaven, you're my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. A voice of affirmation and love booming across the universe, launching Jesus' public ministry. I endorse you. I am with you. You will reveal my heart to the world that so desperately needs it. And John the Baptist says, I affirm that this is true. He really is the Son of God. And there's one more snapshot of John the Baptizer. Verses 35 through 37 about the disciples. The next day when John was there again, the two disciples say, and when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. And when the two disciples heard him say that, they followed Jesus. You see, John the Baptist is standing with two of his own. And he sees Jesus. John repeats the Lamb of God statement. Is it just in case that they didn't get it the first time? No. He's actually pointing his own disciples in the direction of Jesus. He's actually inviting his own disciples to leave him and go follow Jesus. He's saying, I'm nothing. This guy's everything. And this is what we learn about John in kind of a wabi-sabi way. There was no jealousy in John, no ego at all, no competition. Like he said, he's the moon and Jesus is the sun. He's been the quarterback and now he's going to be riding the bench. He was Mr. Big who got it all the attention and now he's headed to the locker room, very hard on the ego, very hard for someone who was once the boss to then work for someone that they used to boss around. Tough to make a downward move like this and actually say to his disciples that they should go on and follow Jesus because he's what it's all about. Frequently, there's a spirit of competition in Christian groups and it's devastating to the cause of Christ. Come to my thing, join my church, give money to me, to my program, the Lord's blessing my ministry, send your dollars, see how humble I am. You know, we got to be careful of that because it's possible for anybody to fall into that trap, to think that we've got a corner on the market, that we're too big to fail, that we're too important. Here's a tough question for people who are in full-time ministry. Would you be willing and eager to let people go 
if you knew God had a greater purpose for them somewhere else? Would you be willing and eager to let people go if you knew God had a regular purpose for them somewhere else? If people leave, that would be hard to take. Like John the Baptist, it requires us to think about the kingdom of God, not just our own little corner of the world, to have a right-sized view of ourselves. Most church conflicts arise out of someone's overactive ego. They got their feelings hurt or their nose bent out of place or they think too big of themselves. Someone who thinks more of themselves than they should. So common, so hard to recognize in ourselves. That's why we need a body to help us uh, hold each other accountable for what we're doing and and how we act. There's a great uh, prayer by John Wesley, who with his brother Charles founded the Methodist denomination back in the 1700s. He put it this way in what is called his covenant prayer. Listen to this. Make this your kind of wabi-sabi prayer for the uh, for this week. And you can find this on the internet. Just Google uh, John Wesley's covenant prayer. It goes like this, a modern version. I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you, exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and wholeheartedly yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. And now, glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are mine and I am yours. So be it. I hope you can make that your prayer this coming week.